Hello, it's a different type of magnified that we're bringing you today because this one was not recorded at my kitchen table as has been the case in but all but a couple of the series so far. This is a live outside broadcast that we recorded. It was at the Shannon International Leasing Conference which takes place in Limerick every November. I've been involved in it since it was established in 2016, run by Samantha Harding. And it brings together people involved in the aviation sector, mainly out of Shannon Airport and the surrounding Limerick region. And there are fascinating stories every year of what's going on in what is such an important industry for the Shannon region and for Ireland and globally. And it does deal with environmental issues very strongly as well, such as sustainable aviation fuel. Now, this year's conference, which took place recently in Limerick, the final part of the conference was where I interviewed the man who's in charge of air traffic control in Europe. Eamon Brennan is originally from Galway. He was head of the Irish Aviation Authority before five years ago he moved to the job in Europe, which he's due to retire from soon. But he has fascinating stories about his background and his business career as an accountant who ended up in charge of air traffic control. And of course, he has a very important job at present, keeping the skies of Europe safe, given what's going on in Russia, dealing with all of the diversions, but also helping airports and airlines get back to viability after all of the disruption caused by COVID. So when I suggested to Samantha that we might broadcast the interview that we did in front of an audience of about 200 people here on Magnified, she jumped at the idea. So thank you, Samantha Harding, for that. And Eamon himself also readily agreed to allow the interview to be broadcast in this particular way. So here it is from Limerick. Here's the head of Eurocontrol, Eamon Brennan. We have with us an Irishman who has an exceptionally important job. In fact, this could be one of the most important jobs that any Irishman holds in the world at present. That said, he is retiring from it in about six weeks' time, but he has had a very distinguished five years in the position of Director General of Eurocontrol. And I have so much to talk to him about. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Eamon Brennan. Thank you. Thanks. Eamon, I'm actually going to start somewhere different to where I'd intended. Um, I want to, to ask you about eVTOLs, about the future for them. And I believe you're looking already at their use potentially at the Olympic Games in Paris in 2024. Yeah, thanks, uh, Matt. So um, I don't want to get in trouble and, and kill off the investors in eVTOL, but I can't see how you make money out of them. Okay, so let's, that's just the first thing. Okay, so I, I'm trying really hard and I don't, want to, I don't want to rain on the party. But there is an issue that, you know, I mean, we talked about all the certification issues there, there the Matt, but the, the, the big thing for me is the business case. Now, we were talking about Donald Slattery making a huge investment in them and that, you know, in venture capital. So, you know, basically for heavy density cities, but to me, the biggest issue is basically what's the business case. So that's number one. Number two, then, for your control, we're running trials at the moment for the, what we call the Paris Drone Evital cor Corridor. And already we're running into issues like, well, okay, if the engine fails, where does it land? Does it land in your garden, top of your field, the restaurant? Where does it land? So all of these kind of things we're working through, the practical elements of it at the moment. So, you know, I know that it, it's, it's good technology, it's noiseless, it's clean technology, but it's basically a poor man's helicopter. That's what it is. 
and, and for, for me, you know, I think you'll struggle to actually make a very good business case from them. Now, the other point I just want to make is that where, where the challenge comes about for, say, Eurocontrol is that we're responsible for the airspace of Europe. So the lower airspace, which, you know, basically up to about seven or 800 feet is called U-space, that has got to integrate with other kinds of drones. So as well as you've got your eVTOL, you've got the guy delivering pizza, you've got the medical supplies, and you know, the kind of technology you're going to use there will be sense and avoid, geofencing, this kind of thing. So it's, it's going to be a real challenge. But one thing I would say is there's an awful lot to be learned technologically from drone technology. And if you can give you a good example, two places where you'll see drone technology applied are not where you think. Number one, pilotless commercial aircraft. Now, they'll all take a very kind of a big intake, and if you're talking to the Irish Pilots Union, they'll say that'll never happen. But it'll go from two to one very quickly, with the other one having an ability to intercept from the ground. So basically, you'll have that. It definitely will do that. I will see that happening So Do you good. see a yeah. future in which we will not have pilots? Yeah, ultimately, we will. It'll take How it's long? A past, I think it's 30 years. But I think within 10 to 15 years, the next generation after the current A320, I think you will see single pilot operations. But what you'll have, which is unique, Matt, is you'll have a link to the ground where a centre will be able to give a second thing. That's what the safety thing will be for this. But remember, high-precision drones at the moment are... We're, we're integrating military drones into airspace at the moment. Uh, in, if you look at the war in, um, in Ukraine, it's all about drones. And it's all about high precision operations, high reliability operations. So it's going to happen. There's no doubt about it. It's just a question of when and what's the safety case for it. And already I think the technology exists. Now you're, from, you're a passenger, you're going to say to me, I'd never get into this. But I'll tell you a story. Well, sorry, about you will, I mean, you're talking about it happening in 30 years' time. Yeah. You, you might, I'd probably be dead. Well, no, you <laughs> might be in your 90s, so you uh, won't be too yeah. worried about well, taking a risk about doing it. No, but, but Matt, I can tell you a story. And, this is a very, and most of the, the regulators here will know this. There was a very famous Pan Am study that was done in 1966 at John F. Kennedy Airport. And a group of passengers generally in the, in the, um, in the terminal, they were asked a simple question. Would you fly in this aircraft if it was flown by women pilots? Right? 70% of the guys who were in the thing said, yeah, no problem at all. The second survey on the same day was taken on the aircraft, a Pan Am aircraft. Would you fly if this specific aircraft has been flown by women pilots? And the exact opposite result, 70% said, no way. Okay, because you have it there, it's in your situation straight away. So what's a general concept and what's a specific situation is very, very important for the, for the mindset of consumers. And that's why I think the biggest challenge will be consumer confidence, not technology in pilotless aircraft. Which makes you wonder at times, why are people actually confident about the humans who fly them? But that's another question, well, well, perhaps. Yeah, but I mean, if you look at, say, any accident, you've accident investigators here, and you've got guys here who do magnificent jobs in this. If you look at any accident investigation report, and I'm doing it for 30 years now, generally, the main cause is humans. It's we didn't do something right, we didn't get up early in the morning, we didn't flip the switch right, we didn't do something right, you know, we didn't power the packs. That's generally the thing. So I think that technology can protect us a lot from a safety point of view with human interaction. So I think you're going to go from three to two, and I think you're going to one with the next generation. Okay, and you mentioned that you don't see the business case for eVitals. What about drone delivery? Yeah, drone delivery, I mean, I, I'm, I'm bemused by that. It's, it's fine. I mean, I, I, I just... It, I, the same problem, I think, with drones is the societal thing in cities. You know, where do they land? Where do they go? And there was a really good question put to Decton. Like, you know, he can't see an Evotel um, depot, let's use that expression, um, on Stephen's Green. 
I mean, if you look at, say, Declan Ryan, who we all know, one of the founders of Reiner, and they, they, they're investing in actually the drone helicopter, the helipads. They see that the future is to get as many of these in the cities. So if you can come up with a network of, say, 25 drone landing sites or EVATOL sites in Dublin, then I think you've got a business. If the only solution is, is dropping off at Connolly Station, well, then I think we just need to get the metro into Connolly Station. It's a lot safer and it's a lot le le less problematic. So it's got to be widely available. And but sorry, is it a yeah. good use of drones to do something like which Bobby Healy has spoken about from coffee. Manuero, dropping coffee off? Well, it's, yeah, if people are buy it, I mean, you know, I, why, why not? I mean, I'm not against... But would you be happy with the idea of these drones dropping yeah. out of the sky? Yeah, no, I'd be absolutely happy. If you want drones or if you want your boots or anything delivered like this, that's fine. You know, I mean, let's be, let's be clear. The pandemic has made a big change. I mean, my biggest beef about the pandemic is it's killing the high streets in Ireland and all over the world. Everybody sits down and orders and it, it arrives. Rather than go into a shop, meet somebody. You know, and, and I like, I have a, a favourite pub I go to in Dublin, McDade's, and they have a nice sign inside the door and it says, no Wi-Fi, talk to each other. And <laughs> I like that kind of concept. Like, so I think, you know, I, I, I'm a traditionalist. I like to go to a shop. But if you want to get it delivered, I wouldn't be opposed to it. And the accuracy of drones that you mentioned that they've been used in the war in Ukraine at present, I remember going back to the Gulf War, the first Gulf War, and we were told that you, know, you had precision bombing now that you could literally drop down a letterbox, yeah. and that turned out to be absolute and utter nonsense. Yeah. Are sometimes excessive claims made for the reliability and accuracy of drones? Yeah, of course they are. But, but, but I think there are more... This, we have a new generation since the Gulf War. You know, we're looking at military drones with accuracy, I think, of five metres now. Like, and I think that's, that's pretty accurate. Now, the issue, of course, is those that are accurate are using what are, you know, extensive kind of electronic and GPS signals, and equally, the counter-battery stuff is using those signals to thwart them. So I think you're seeing a lot more of the stuff in Ukraine. Our, our information, and we're a civil military organisation, is that a lot of them are now starting to go astray. You know, you fire a drone, and then it's uh, uh, to something, it's either intercepted or electronic warfare is, is jamming it and it lands somewhere it shouldn't, generally on a block of flats and a lot of people get killed and it's not nice. And that's the reality. So, they, they, you know, we have to be always very careful, particularly in all these aviation experts here will tell you that, you know, aircraft are now relying more and more on GPS and on, on satellite systems, whereas beforehand we were using ground-based systems. But you do need a backup. You know, you need some system that you can operate because remember, GPS is an American system and if they flick it off in the morning, you know, in theory, we've got one in Europe which doesn't work and in the other one is the Russian one. So we wouldn't be in a particularly great position if the Americans switched GPS off. Talk to me a little bit about the impact of the Russian invasion of Ukraine for you and for how you do business. Because we heard this morning an example was given to us of how Finnair now has to skirt all the way around Russia mm. as it heads off delivering flights to Japan. Um, how, how much difficulty is this causing you and your operations? So it's been the most significant thing that's happened to European airspace. So maybe if I, just for the benefit of the audience. So we, we manage about 37,000 flights a day in 41 countries. So if you want to take off from Dublin and you want to go to Greece, our job is to get you there, dump, dump, dump right through, uh, uh, and to make sure that you don't hold. And environmentally, we're trying to, our job is to eliminate holding and make sure that... So we, we're what we call the network manager. Now, the problem we've got in Europe at the moment is... The sanctions have closed Russian airspace. So there's a number of effects, and Belarusian airspace. So normally, we would put about 600 aircraft per day 
through the Russian Federation, long haul, heading to Korea, to Far, Far East. So they would normally use Estonian, Finnish, Russian airspace on the Great Circle. Now what's happened, as you saw this morning, we're having to put those 500 aircraft south through Slovakia, Romania, Turkey, and to the Far East that way. Now, it's longer, but that's not the problem. The biggest problem for us is those 500 air aircraft are now operating in airspace that really belongs to EasyJet, Ryanair, Whiz. And straight away, just to give it, make it really easy, is that this year we're operating 90% of 2019 traffic with 80% of the airspace. So straight away, it's like the bottle is starting to fill. So next summer is going to be very difficult. And this, we see this dragging on for three or four years. So capacity is coming back. The only thing that rescued us this summer from, I would say, a catastrophic meltdown in air traffic control in Europe was the fact that China was closed. Because that cuts out a huge amount of um, aircraft going over and back as well. But when that opens up again, straight away, demand will restore. And maybe you might say, what's this got to do? Well, if you take a Lufthansa flight to Beijing, when that's cancelled, it basically cancels three other flights that feed the flight. And so straight away, they will come back once that happens. So that's the first thing, Matt. And the second thing is, there's going to be a really big problem that's starting to manifest in Europe at the moment. Maybe I explain to you. Russian airspace is closed to European carriers, to American carriers. So we, we implement that. We won't let you fly. We won't take the flight plan. We'll stop you flying. Okay? But Chinese carriers, like we're carrying Amazon stuff or stuff, all the goods that come, they fly right through Russia every day. They land in Antwerp, they land in Liège, they land in Paris, they load up again, and they fly back through Russia to China. So there's no two hours for them, there's no extra crews for them. Meanwhile, our carriers in Europe, like Air France and Lufthansa and British Airways, they, they can't do that, they're not allowed to do that. So that's it at the moment. We can take that because I think the EU don't have the metal to take them on. But just finish second, the problem will be in about three months' time when the Chinese carriers open up again. You know, the, then you will see another 300 of them coming up this way, and then you will really see very serious competitional friction with Lufthansa, all of these guys, because they'll have a significant advantage not having to fly two and a half hours south, not having to do the fuel, not having to have the extra crew, and at the moment, there's a kind of a, um, what I say, a, a regulatory limbo on this. Okay, but well let me ask you a couple of questions arising out of that. I mean, would you have concerns when aircraft start coming out of Russian aerospace that you could always correctly identify them as being the aircraft that are supposed to be coming out of there, as in Chinese ones that have come across? Yeah, the, I mean, that's not a problem. No, but no we have a problem. We've satellite, that's not a problem. We have flight plans for them. You know, we, no, no problem. We expect them, we know they're coming. But the, the question that's coming up is the competitive issue is that, you know, so take Hanan Airlines or, or uh, you know, China Southern can fly straight through. Lufthansa cannot. Finnair cannot. How much fear do you have of any European airlines potentially straying inadvertently into Russian airspace? No, I don't, I don't think, I, I, I'm pretty confident that what won't happen. We're, we're on top of that, we have stuff. I mean, we, you do get some kind of things. I mean, just to say, not to share any big secret, but last week I had a guy who took off from a prominent place in South Europe, flew through Belarus and the north of Russia, and when we pulled him up on it and, you know, really subjected him to questioning afterwards, he said he wasn't aware of the restrictions, he hadn't heard anything about the war, and I was kind of saying, look, what planet is this guy living on? So this was, to even all our experts now, and I have hundreds of them are scratching their heads saying they had never encountered a guy as stupid as this. Okay, right. hang on. What, right. what, sort, what sort of aircraft was this? No, it was a small jet, a small jet, a small jet, a Learjet. 
A Learjet. Yeah, a Learjet. Yeah, but he took off. Now, I mean, the first thing you do, any pilot here will tell you, is you consult the notums. You see, actually, Belarusian airspace is closed, you know, and, and the, the trick that... So where pilots, did he take off from? Because wouldn't he have well, to well, let's, let's a flight Malta. Malta. Yeah, but, but the point about this is, and it's important to remember, is that, you know, uh, if you operate normally, it won't happen to you. But you get this, and that's one. But that's the great thing about the system. He was picked up immediately. But nobody else can do that. Like but sorry, when you say he's picked up, what happens to somebody? We do, well, what happens with us, if, if you want to fly in Europe at the moment, you file a flight plan with Eurocontrol. Not, not, not with the IEA or not with um, Nats. We then process the flight plan, send it back to Nats and say, here's the route you go, here's the time you go. And we administer a thing called slots. You'll often have been sitting on an aircraft and the pilot will say, I've lost my slot or I have a 15 minute delay. Mm. That's generally coming from Eurocontrol. And it means that we can't guarantee the passage of the guy through. So one of the things we try to do, Matt, is we try to eliminate holding. You know, if you, if you, I don't know if you've fl flown all over Europe recently, but we're nearly down to virtually zero holding. And what we do is we hold you on the ground because it's nicer for the passenger. I know it's a bit frustrating, but it's better to hold you on the ground than to put you flying around Heathrow for 20 minutes in bumpy clouds. And, and, get that's the, where, and getting yeah, headaches. And, and getting headaches and burning juice and all that kind of uh, CO2. So that's really important. So we do that. But, you know, it, it, it's a challenge. Something else that strikes me, you mentioned Belarusia. What about the potential for hijacks? I mean, is this something that you would also perhaps, is a security issue yeah. maybe for the airports more, but that we could have, like we had that issue with a Ryanair flight been hijacked mm. in recent years, that this could be a tactic that the Russians might use in the next phase of the war? It's, po it's possible, but I mean, if you look at the Ryanair one in, in Belarus, that was effectively a state hijacking of a civil aircraft. I mean, let's be clear about that. You know, I mean, the, 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 the ICAO have just finished their report into it and they, the pilots and Reiner behaved exemplary in the situation. The reality is, is that, you know, most pilots, when they get an instruction from ATC, they obey it. You know, even if you're told, don't divert there, go here, you know, you'll query it, but you will do what the ATC says. And, you know, if where you have a state subverting that, then that's what the problem was. But we're not flying through Belarus anymore. It's closed. No, but as the Director General of Eurocontrol, when that issue happened, was that one of the most stressful things that you've ever had to deal well, with? Well, I was actually, I was on it like within minutes because basically Michael O'Leary was on to me, you know, <laughs> missing an airplane. So, so um, yeah, we, no, no, it was, yeah, but, but like it was pretty clear straight off what had happened here. You know, I mean, to be, to be, to be very honest here, like when, it, when it, it became very obvious when the same amount of passengers didn't get back on the aircraft as got off the aircraft, you know. Now, sometimes there was all kinds of misinformation that they had driven to uh, Lithuania, they weren't continued. But, you know, we'd spoken to the pilots and it was, they were very clear what had happened. They were forcibly, like, no, there was no MiGs or anything. They were basically strongly suggested, you go here, if you cross the border, you're going to be in trouble with... with um, with explosives and this kind of thing. And that's important. I mean, ICAO investigated it, Matt, and it's black and white. Now, I don't think that happens that often. You know, that kind of thing. That was a one-off, I think. And I think we'd be all a little bit more um, wary of that. Like, we'd never encountered something like that again. A state, just think about this, conducting a hijacking. We're, we're ready with cockpit doors. We have special codes. We have everything we have for normal hijacking, but we'd never encountered this before. So it was a lesson for everybody. How did you get into all of this? How did you actually end up in air traffic control and those type of things? So it was all, how I ended up in it, Matt, was completely by accident. So I'm, by profession, I'm a chartered accountant. So I remember when I qualified as a chartered accountant, I really hated the whole thing. So one of the early things I did was I threw the, I threw the Companies Act, 1963. Anybody who ever studies chartered accountancy, this was the Bible. I threw it into the car up. 
Okay, and no, it's really important. I remember, and I'm sorry if I polluted anything, but at the time I was very frustrated. I threw it into the car, and I started taking flying lessons in, in Galway Flying Club, and then I, I finished a, a PPL um, in France, and I went then working in consultancy in the UK. So and when I went to the UK, I was working in an aviation and tourism consultancy, Horwitz. So that's basically how I got into it. And I went from there to Malta, then I was working in aviation in Malta on a, on a master plan, and then on to Kuala Lumpur. I was there for seven years, and then back to the IA when the kids started growing up and wanted to, um, uh, got to um, an age I had to bring them to school. So I love flying. I mean, I've been flying up to a year or two ago. I'll get back flying again. Now, that's my plan for, for Q1 next year is to see if I can get the uh, pilot's license back, you know, and, and um, I, I actually just love aviation. I love everything about it. So every day I go into work, I'm happy. So that's one of the pleasures I've had in life is that I've never kind of gone in and said, oh, you know, Michael Leary's going to be ringing me again, or, you know, because you have all these problems in life, but it's nice. Michael Leary, I know, you're ringing you is a problem, is it? No, no, it's not, but I mean, <laughs> Declan will know there in, in, in the yeah, You know, I have a collection of Michael O'Leary letters, you know. Uh, you got on reasonably what? well with him, though. By reputation, you got on with him enough. Oh, yeah, no, I get on very well with him. I talk to him, I, I get on very well with him. But, yeah, but, like, you have to be realistic, is that, is that when you're the regulator, yeah, you have to regulate in a way that has, to a degree, the consent of the regulated. So, you know, you can't be imposing things that are actually, they won't do. So it's always better that you have a positive relationship. And, and I have always found Reiner to be a very, like, you know, I mean, I'll give you a good example. I remember way back, uh, 2005 and 2006, EASA used to send out regulations and it would say, the, the, you know, the operator may do this, the operator may do that, the operator may do the other. And Reiner said, well, they may do it. I'm not doing it, okay? And we're not doing it. And this was driving me nuts for a while until eventually I got down to IASA. I sat down and I realized this was been written in French and translated into English. And we got made, taken out for should, and problem stopped. And that was it. I mean, so little things like that, like in your life, because IASA was in its early days as well. You know, so I think you have to be very prescriptive. And commercial aviation regulations are very good. There, to me, it's, it's a safe industry, but it's a safe industry because of all the people in this room that make it safe from camos and, you but know... There's a balancing act to be met, though, isn't there, between being a regulator who is aware of the commercial realities of the operators and trying to be supportive of it, but also not to be actually captured in the way yeah, that course, perhaps yeah. the banking regulators yeah. were in the read-up to our crash. So how did you actually manage to No, but we, we managed very simply, and they, they, they'll tell you the same thing. We, we're, we're not writing the regulations in Ireland. Mm. We're implementing European regulations. That's number one. And we, as the regulator, are subject to audit four or five times, sometimes in one year, from Europe to make sure we're doing the regulations. So, you know, you don't have the options that you would have had before EASA came or before the European Union where you could bend a regulation or change it. That doesn't happen. Like, to be fair with the IA, the regulations are implemented right across the board. Now, everybody doesn't like them. You know, I mean, if there's always kind of a certain discussion going on about, you know, pilot licensing hours and pilots' um, rosters and all this, but we implement the schedule that's there and the law in Europe, and then we try to, in, you know, help manufacture that law in Europe. And that's really important that you're, in Ireland, that you're very involved in Europe, because if you're not involved in Europe, you get run over by the majors, you know, and that's a big thing. Would it be fair to say, though, that the positive relationship that you built with Ryanair did actually help in the expansion of the airline, and that then in turn was good for Ireland. Yeah, of course it is. Yeah, but we're not, the, 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 you know, the, the concept of the Irish Aviation Authority, it's not Irish against aviation. You know, you're there to actually, I want aircraft to fly. I fly myself, I want aircraft to fly. So the regulator's job would be really easy, Matt, and there'd be no risk if the aircraft didn't fly. 
If you all stayed on the ground and everybody was there, there's no risk. But the big thing you have to do is facilitate an environment where there's a positive safety culture. And that question about how that evolves over time takes time. So it's really important that you have a positive relationship and that, that they listen to you. And that when you say no, no means no. And that they understand that. You know, and that's if, you have a good regula if you're a good regulator and you manage very effectively, that will work well. Have you ever had any major crashes under your watch? I have, yeah, yeah. I mean, they, 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 um, I've had a lot of basically what I would say, not major ones, but I've had a lot of the small, um, you know, general aviation ones, which are sometimes very sad, you know, like guys in the summer heading off with their families. We had the um, Cork Airport a few. Yeah, I had the Cork Airport one there as well, and I had Rescue 117, you know, all of those were under my watch as well. So um, they happen. Unfortunately, aviation. Accidents do happen, but, and, 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 but we try to engineer them out and learn from them, and I think that's the big thing. What's probably remarkable is, is how few have actually happened. Yeah. Well, when you look at the scale of the... Of the I mean, let, let's just look at the facts. If you look at today, you know, or say a busy, a busy summer day in Europe, we'll have 37,000 commercial flights, right? On top of that, we'll have about 3,500 military flights, which have to be integrated into the aerospace as well. And, and at the moment, integrating military operations is really tricky. I mean, we have the bottom of Poland closed with the, um, with the war, you know, we're, so we're working very closely with NATO, facilitating exercises. Everybody all of a sudden is exercising. And the, the, the trick is, when you see all that, and you look then at how very few actual accidents there are, you realize this industry is a very safe industry. And it's a safe because people put effort into it. And that's the one thing that I have found in my career that permeates through the whole industry is people talk about safety. Because I always put it up on the slide first, safety is the first priority. And I mean that because you won't travel on an Aer Lingus or a Ryanair plane if it's not safe. You just won't go. And that's the first thing that you've got to be. So you've got to cross that before anything happens. So that's why I was a little bit bemused there, Matt, when there were, the guys were talking about the... Um, safety standards for, say, a lightning strike on an EVATOL. Now, in my view, if you, get a, a safety, if you get a lightning strike on an EVATOL, you're toast. Right? That's my view. Right? I mean, maybe I just... I just I Literally just, toast. Battery <laughs> technology, which relies on electricity, getting, you know, two gigaton bolt, don't think it's going to work. But maybe it will. I could be proved wrong, and I, some of my airworthiness colleagues there might prove me better, but I think I would give them a... You know, I, I would want to be convinced, you know? Okay, um, you went earlier. You mentioned about the fact that you're suffering a little bit from congestion at present. So, what is the future for air travel? I mean, we we had the graph earlier this morning about the incredible growth in passenger numbers on flights globally. Mm -hmm. Now, maybe other parts of the world will start catching up. But from what you're saying, our Europe sky is almost full. Yeah. The answer is the so l l l l our current capacity in Europe is about thirty-eight thousand in a good day. Now, that's a day where we don't get any thunderstorms or convective weather. We don't get anybody running off a runway in Gatwick or Dublin. And we don't get any kind of a, an accident or anything happening untoward. Now, that's all things going well. At 38,000 flights, we'll deliver within our target of 15 minutes. That, that's what we'll do. That has never happened. There's never a day like that. And the problem then, of course, is we're so near the top of the bucket that, you know, when you start restricting our airspace in Poland, restricting our airspace in the Baltics, you've got problems. And now we're seeing a lot more military activity. You know, there's logistical activity supporting the war in Ukraine. Um, Belarusian airspace is closed. And, you know, the biggest problem for us is the fact that we are using you know, short-haul routes for long-haul aircraft at the moment. And maybe just uh, give you a good example. How, how 
vulnerable we are in Europe at the moment. So the only way to get to Asia at the moment is down by Turkey. So we're not Syrian airspace is closed. Iraqi airspace is closed. Afghanistan airspace is closed. The north of Pakistan is closed. Russia is closed. And Ukraine and Belarus is closed. Somalia is closed. So they're kind of, and up to last year, you had a, a dispute going on between Qatar and Saudi Arabia. And that was closed for really, realistically, you have to figure out which aircraft could go there. So it's not that easy. And the problem is that the little narrow corridor we have down is very dependent on Turkey, and it's very dependent now on Israel and on Jordan and that little corridor down there. So we've just got to kind of make sure that we keep everything on a level peg this year. So does that mean that diplomacy is part of the brief in your job, is it? Yeah. Or are, well, you, or are you just dependent on what's happening at a higher level in for <laughs> macro politics? Well, macro politics governs a lot of it, Matt. Like at the end of the day, we can't influence that, you know. And often what happens is we, we get knocked down effects of it. But, but if I could just go on to like, uh, change the topic, if you don't mind me changing the topic. Work away. The, the biggest problem we're going to have is next summer. Like I fr I'm seeing a near traffic disaster in Europe next summer because you've got a couple of things happening. First of all, you've got the war is going to continue. Then we have the propensity of the French for recreational striking, okay? And that happens always at the peak time in the summer. And this, there's nothing we can do about it. Like, it happens just when we're kind of everything is going well. Is this something you could actually say about the French now that you're on your way out yeah, the door no, is, and retiring no, no, they know. I've, no, I've been saying about them for years. I mean, there's a, there's a principle in Europe that the European Commission have got to start implementing, and that's the right of free movement. The right, and if you ask Willie Walsh, the DG of IATA, or anybody, they'll tell you the same thing. You, we, you, if the French want to go on strike, they can close Paris, Marseille, and everything, but they should protect overflights. And that's part of the ICAO convention, mm. not implemented. It's part of the free movement to travel. And the problem that you have is if you're living in Leeds or you're living in Dublin or something, and you've booked your holiday with Ryanair or EasyJet or somebody, now you're faced with something completely outside your control. You couldn't anticipate, and your holiday's dead. And it really is sad that, like, I don't care. I'm not, I'm not disputing somebody's right to strike. I'm very supportive of that. But not the right to block everybody who's nothing to do with your strike, you know, over and back. You know, implement the strike in France. Don't implement it everywhere else. I think famously Ronald Reagan sacked all the air well, yeah. controllers yeah, yeah. in the United States. No, I wouldn't try that. But, um, but do we need them? I mean, we're coming well, back to human error earlier. Are we moving towards a situation where computers could do all the air traffic control without humans having to be involved? Yeah, it's a while off that. It's, it's, it's a while. But, but the answer is probably in the long run, long, long run, yes. With the, the role of the controller will change. In other words, the controller won't be doing... Like, what the controller does at the moment, Matt, is he provides physical separation between flights, and he watches that it doesn't happen. You know, now, already in my generation, since, say, we implemented the new system here in Shannon, we have a thing called medium-term conflict alert where the computer works out ahead if two aircraft are going to work, and he'll warn you. Now, more of that is starting to happen. So the, the role of the controller in the future will be more of a flow manager, managing it to make sure, and sitting there to just implement if something happens. Because where all this technology comes from, and it's back to the drones, and this is the big plus about drones, is sense and avoid geofencing technology. This is what now we're asking to start to be. Because there's one big reality in Europe at the moment is the technology on board aircraft is far more advanced than the technology that's deployed on the ground by air traffic control. So the aircraft left to themselves can do a lot more than actually we're making them do at the moment. And that's, that's one of the big challenges we have in Europe, is to get the value for money for the aircraft to do this. So, you know, the single European sky is a problem.
But you say you're expecting massive traffic congestion yeah. next year. Why? Well, I'm just wondering, is that really going to happen, given that we haven't recovered to the old levels of traffic since COVID? Yeah. And now we have recession looming. And yeah. Recession normally tends to impact on air travel. No, it does. So, let, but let's analyse that statement for a minute, for, for a minute Matt. What, what, what has not returned? The low-cost carriers are generally up 14 to 15% at the moment this year. That's Swayze, Ryanair, EasyJet. Who's not up are Air France, BA and Lufthansa, people that are using hub and spoke operations. So what we're seeing in Europe is a big increase in secondary airports. I mean, give you an example. Palma de Mallorca is up, I think, about 60% in air traffic on 2019. So I'm, I'm foreseeing that actually, regardless of the recession, people will travel next year because of two things. There's a huge amount of supply been put into the market. If you take Ryanair as an example, they'll put in an extra 30, 40 aircraft, if, assuming Boeing deliver them next year. Whiz will put in probably about 30. Um, Air France are putting in more. So I'm seeing that the actual um, capacity available in the marketplace will be up next year by about 10%. Now, straight away, market forces will see to fill that. So from a pure practical point of view, I think it's going to be a difficult summer next year because there's more aircraft chasing less airspace and it's going to be more difficult. So that's what we're, going to, we're faced with. And if the war continues, we're in for a bad crunch. On the economics of it, Frankie O'Connell in his presentation today yeah. was suggesting that business travel is not going to be the source of revenue for the airlines that it once was. I believe you disagree with that. No, I, 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 don't, I disagree with it. Uh, like, I, I, let's, let's be clear. I disagree with the concept that was very prevalent during COVID. Nobody will ever travel again. The minute you took the plug from the Irish traveller, they stormed out to Dublin airport and created the black hole of Calcutta out there at the airport. You saw it yourself. Maybe they like, should have been using Shannon yeah, and Cork Maybe they should have been using Shannon, yeah. But, but the, no, I mean, I don't fully disagree, Frank. The, the, let's be clear. I think that business travel will not stop. I don't think that. I mean, I spoke to BA yesterday and their business travel bookings, transatlantic, are up to before what they were before the recession. So I don't see a big stop there. And I don't see it happening again with Lufthansa. But what they are telling me is there's a subtle shift to back towards more towards premium economy. So that's number one. But what's really booming at the moment is leisure travel. And there's, there's a number of different markets coming up. People are going on holidays, and then people who are retired are going out there and spending cash. So Reiner at the moment, if you saw the release yesterday, and Whiz, you know, about 95% um, load factor. Whiz are about 96. BA at the moment were telling me that they're operating at about 88, 89% load factor, which is good. So the airlines are doing well. And I think next summer will be boom time again. I don't subscribe to the fact that there'll be less traffic, that the recession will kill anything. It's an amazing thing. Inflation is killing us here in Ireland. It's not killing bookings at the moment for Christmas and for January. People are still booking because extra capacity is coming in and actually an airfare is now really good value for money. And, you know, you can... But that suggests that something that was regarded once as a luxury has now become a staple. Yeah, but, but I, I don't have a slide, but I had a slide in Eurocontrol, where, which I really loved. It was from the US Department of Labour, and they were showing staples, clothing, food, petrol, air travel, as a staple of the yeah. American thing. So people, if you tell people they can't travel anymore, you're going to be in trouble. And I think that's the, you know... One of the reasons, if, you're, if we're talking about sustainability, you know, there's a lot of discussion here. You can't have a discussion without saying the word sustainability two or three you times. You just preempted where I was about yeah, to go. But, but, you, but the right to travel is very important. I mean, it's what stops wars. 
Like, I'm a big believer that the reason the European Union, and I'm a big supporter of the EU, is that people travel, know each other. I sit in a, a management board with an Italian, a French guy, Hungarians, people from all nationalities, and we just get on with it. And that's really, you know, it's, it's really a credit to Europe to see that. Is it easier without British input? No, I mean, so it's not. I mean, so let's be clear. We have to break, Eurocontrol has 41 member states. UK still are... As they are a member of Eurocontrol. That's one thing in Europe one thing. they didn't So that's positive. But, but we're actually a little bridge to the Brits with, Euro, with, with, with Europe. But the, the reality is that people want to travel. People want to travel. And then what about the environmental and sustainability, sustainability issues arising from that? So, so sustainability, so like, it's a real, I mean, I, I had um, Gus Kelly at a, a conference in Eurocontrol about Two or three, I think it was at the start of the month, and he really put a few very good points across. First of all, engine technology, and you have experts here on engine technology, but we need to be honest, there's no engine being made at the moment, you know, uh, and engines that are being made and delivered at the moment are going to be in service for the next 20, 25 years. That's the reality. So if you're looking at the LEAP engines or the CFM56 derivatives that are the main power plants of the short-haul airlines, they are going to be there. So the only way out of this is what we're calling SAF, and you, you were discussing it this morning, but there's a huge amount it's of heresy. Sustainable about air fuel. Sustainable yeah, air fuel. Aviation with, fuel sustainable yeah. aviation fuel. Now, it's either bio or non-bio, but you can, there's subtle arguments going on with the Greens in, Euro, in Europe at the moment as to whether if you, if you plant uh, 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 crops and you use them for biofuel, that is really biofuel. You know, and and how, how do you get it? Should it just be municipal waste? But there is a real reality about this, uh, Matt. And uh, it's, people don't want to... Like, first of all, it's three and a half times today. I just checked it there for a minute. The price of J1, which is the standard jet fuel. So you'd be nuts to buy it, right? Second of all, even if you want to buy it, and Karsten Spohr, the CEO of Lufthansa, two weeks ago said, or three weeks ago said, I, if I wanted to buy biofuel, there's not enough in the world today to power Lufthansa's fleet for one day. So, so we're talking about a kind of a fantasy about the whole thing. So what it is is basically this whole thing to get to net zero. So we need to start producing biofuel and blaming the government for it and everything and they won't do this. This is a real cop-out as far as I'm concerned. The most important thing is there is a real good business case for biofuel. There's no business case for Evitol's. There's a brilliant business case of this. So if, you, if I was investing now, if I had tons of cash, I would pump money into this because the engines are there, you don't have to modify the engines, and it is the way out. Now, remember, the fuel mandate that the Commission have given at the moment is for a 2% mix, and that is the most unambitious thing I've ever seen. That should be 10, 15, and moving on to 15 and 75, because the more you mandate it, the more the demand is there, and the more the business case is there. So it's a really good business to get into. But should aviation kerosene be tax-free? Yeah, no, I, I, I think it should be. I mean, let's, I, 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 no, I'll tell you why. Because there is no other industry in Europe is taxed as much as aviation, Matt. Honestly, you can't move with your tax. So, I mean, I remember seeing, um, I think it was Willie Walsh, showed a, a, a 747 with all the monkeys on its back. So let's start off. Airport charges, air traffic control charges, baggage fees basically ground handling services. Like, it's tax after tax after tax. And then if you take, for instance, the Dutch, as a very good example. I, I met somebody there, I uh, was listening to the, um, the, the Cahill Crow last night, and he was saying that he was heading off with a mission to um, look at how he would learn from the Dutch aviation industry. There's nothing to learn from the Dutch. So what the Dutch do is basically, they tax everything, right? Uh, aviation, they don't want aviation. 
uh, and they've got land borders, they can drive everywhere. We're an island nation. It's really important. And then they have this very subtle thing that only the Dutch would do. If you're a connecting passenger in Schiphol, you're exempt from the aviation tax. Now, think about that. That means basically KLM don't pay any tax. Everybody else pays tax. Now, that's a real thing where they protect their industries. And I think in Ireland, we need to do the same. We're an island nation, so we need to promote the use of staff to power our fleet, and the minister needs to get on with it. But do you think the Dutch approach, and maybe that of some Scandinavian countries and others, will come to inform EU thinking and that there will be a deliberate attempt to downgrade aviation to discourage people from travel. Oh, oh, no, Matt, what you're saying is really true. I go to the European Parliament regularly and I go there and, you know, I, 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 I'm very pro-sustainability. I'm pro-reducing CO2. I'm pro-reducing NOx. I'm not pro-reducing flights. And the long haul, of course, you know, they're exempt from what we call the CARSI and the ETS scheme. And of course, they don't pay. And that's the problem that you have. You have a kind of a dual track policy in Europe where there's a kind of an idea, short haul, Ryanair, uh, EasyJet, whiz, bad, Lufthansa, Air France, British Airways, good. You know, and this permeates the thinking. And some of it comes from, I think, probably the old friction with social tension with labour and this kind of thing. But effectively, Matt, the most important thing, I think, for, for Europe is that Ireland, as a peripheral nation, Cyprus, Italy, there's a lot of allies we have out there and we've got to build it. Now, unfortunately, what I'm seeing with the current minister in Ireland, you've got a minister there who doesn't have any interest in aviation. So he ain't going to bat and form an alliance with Cyprus. He's not going to form an alliance with the Italian regions and he's not going to form an alliance with the Brits to protect. And that's a big issue. Is that fair, though, on the minister who's the Green Party leader, yeah, yeah. Ryan, given that during COVID the government committed enormous sums of money to protecting... Aer Lingus, for example, which is yeah. no longer under state ownership, yeah. provided it with soft loans mm. of enormous size and gave a lot of money to the airports as well. And he did say it was all on the basis of protecting our connectivity and our trade. Yeah, but, but Matt, I would say to you, everybody else did as well. And what we did here in Ireland, where I sat in Brussels, you should have seen the cash Lufthansa got. You should have seen the cash Air France got. I mean, Lufthansa got so much cash that they could hand it back you know, said they didn't need three billion of it. I think they got seven billion. So we got basically labour support and it's a good idea because otherwise the labor, these guys would have been working on, 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 on social welfare. What I think is really important, I don't want to be critical of the minister, but what I want to say is that you've got to realise aviation is strategic for Ireland. And if you, you know, it's one of the most important things. So you've got to make sure that in Europe you form um, allies who have similar thinking because otherwise you get rolled over and just to finish the answer when I go to the European Parliament just to give you an example half the guys I'm making a presentation about something but I get a very bad vibe that they don't want people to travel they're actually against aviation so there's a lot of people that are, are you know I would say that are don't just want to stop CO2, don't just want to kill NOx, they actually want to stop travel. And they believe that travel is bad for the planet because, you know, and I get the point, uh, tourism is bad for the planet, but I have to say I don't agree with that because it stops wars, it promotes interaction, and if you're told tomorrow that you can only have one flight a year next year, so where are you going to go? And the reality is, if you bring in that approach, you will very quickly have a rise in authoritarian regimes and you'll have a lot of problems. And I'm jumping now hugely there politically, but I think freedom of movement is essential for, for democracies. And I, I think that's where we've got to balance this and make it sustainable. But we can't, we can't just rule it out. But what about then the arguments that some would put forward on environmental grounds that the price of tickets should be more expensive? Why? 
to persuade people to travel. No, I see. I, I rather think, than taking regular weekend breaks. No, I, I actually think that's elitist kind of bull now. I'm, I'm being really honest with you here. That's the kind of stuff you hear from Lufthansa uh, because they basically, you know, can't compete. Now the reality is, if you make uh, if you make travel tickets very expensive, then people who've got money can travel. So, you know, somebody who's not a middle-income family or somebody in an industrial wage, they can't travel. And I mean, I don't think we should allow that. I think the democratization of travel that's been brought about by low-cost carriers in Europe is really, really good. And I think this kind of elitist attitude that no, 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 tax aviation so much that nobody can travel. Okay, but the, the rich guys and the guys with good income, they'll still travel but the rest of us will, won't, and, and I think that's really bad for society and it's really bad. So I, I feel very strongly and passionately that people should be allowed to travel. How much sympathy do you have for the airlines and for the airports which so badly failed to anticipate the rebound in their uh, business this year? So, they all, so the answer is they all didn't. Now, I, I know from an, I'm back in Ireland, sometimes like, uh, you know, when I come back to Ireland, I... I have to pinch myself again that I'm back because, like, we do things better than most. You know, we out-COVID COVID than anybody in Europe. I was in Belgium. We had the best regulations and more people weren't wearing masks and everything. I was watching the news in Ireland and there was a constant kind of COVID, COVID, COVID. In Belgium, there was one, one press conference a week. So it was there, but it wasn't hyped up. You know, and you'll, you know, you'll see the Tommy Tiernan jokes, you know, during the, the, the boom, we had more houses than anybody else, and, you know, we went bust better than anybody else, and we'll travel more than anybody else, and all of this kind of stuff goes on. So, like, it, it, this is a, a little bit of that symptom, I think. Okay, but could Dublin Airport not have planned better? Yeah, they could have. I mean, let's be clear. The forecasts for the recovery were there. In Eurocontrol, we published forecasts in January, and people who took, who took uh, a bite of that, like, basically did very well. Italian airports did very well. French airports did very well. UK airports didn't do very well. And it comes down to a very simple thing, Matt, is where staff were laid off, they couldn't recover. So basically, Dublin, you know, I mean, it, it may be a simple thing. If you're a baggage handler in Dublin airport, you're getting a little bit more than the minimum wage. Why would you come back to work? Like, you can work in Lidl for maybe 20% less, but you don't have to get up at 3 o'clock in the morning. And a security handler at the airport, you're probably about... 30% more than the minimum wage, and it isn't worth it. So we have to look at the full value chain. You know, sometimes when you're at these kind of conferences here, all the guys here are engineers and pilots and air traffic controllers. That's the rich end of the tree. Right under that in aviation, there's a poor end of the tree. There's baggage handlers, guys serving coffee, refuelers, and I have a lot of sympathy for them, and I think they need to be remunerated and protected more, and less kind of discussion about the guys at the top who are making plenty of books and can mind themselves. But you mentioned secondary airports around Europe recently, yep. and we heard also earlier today about Shipall now limiting the numbers of travel through. Should we be putting a limit on the numbers in Dublin Airport so as to disperse the traffic to Shannon and to Cork and to Knock, rather than funneling, it seems, about 80 to 90% of all the traffic through Dublin Airport? I'd, I'd love it. I'm, I'm, a, I'm, I'm not a Dublin person. My answer, I'd, I'd love to say yes, but the answer is no. Why? Because passengers will travel where they want to travel from and where is the most convenient. So if we look at Dublin Airport at the moment, Dublin Airport, we put in a second runway in Dublin Airport, so the capacity's there. We now need to build a, term, a third terminal in Dublin Airport and get, a, get ahead of it. And, you know, it You're going be, to be getting more phone calls from Michael O'Leary. Yeah, no, I will. Uh, no, but he's got to pay for it. I mean, he can't be flying in for nothing. Like, I mean, Michael would like to... He doesn't you know, want to pay would like for it. He hated the second term. Throw them out yeah. in the grass at the roundabout and <laughs> that'd be grand. You know, we all know that. But, like, he's getting practical. You know, I mean, you know, if... What I've noticed, you know, he'd be talking about Michael, but, uh, you know, 
you know, when he started off, when I was dealing with him originally, he used to go, his big thing was he'd go down, he'd, you know, you wrote a book about him, he'd be down kind of loading planes and all this kind of thing. Now he's got 550 of them, he can't load planes. You know, and th 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 this is the reality. But what, what we have to understand here in Ireland is that Shannon has a great place here. This, it is a great place, but we've had successive times, and you're very dependent, you're very hard to get people to fly out of Shannon. I mean, I think that upset me most, I saw a guy once operating a bus from Shannon Airport, from the airport, or around here, going to Dublin Airport in the morning to catch flights. Like, I just thought that was nuts. But, but you know, we've tried, and there's a good board in place in Shannon, and Mary Considine and the people here are trying to get it. But the consumer, if the consumer doesn't want to come, you can't force it. So I think in Ireland, you know, if the same happens, we, we probably have a lot of airports, and there's an extension coming in Waterford now again soon, so more competition coming in. But a personal preference for me, Matt, I love regional airports. You know, it, my favourite airport in all of Ireland is Kerry. You drive in there, and the next minute somehow you're in the car park. And I just love that whole concept. And the same with Luton and, you know, Bergamo and smaller airports like that. That's the way it's to me. So I think the whole thing for, for passengers now is point to point and, you know, get away from the big airports. And that's, that's, I think Dublin will suffer a bit from that. Just but there's no, I think it's going to, Dublin's going to grow. For the environmentalists, what's your carbon footprint? How much flying do you do in a year? I, I don't do that much. No, no, and, and I offset. I, I, I tell you. Oh, hang on now. We've had yeah. a debate about offset here that it's a bit of a con Yeah, no, no, no. Do but, you but, believe in it? Matt, well, I'll tell you a funny thing. We had a conference in Eurocontrol about two weeks ago, and they're all environmentalists. It was all about sustainability. And this guy gets up and he says, now, when everybody put up their hand, you all flew in here. 400 people have flown in, or 300 or whatever. How many people have offset? Virtually nobody put their hand up. Now, and when I, when I ch tackled Joseph Verratti about this, the CEO of Wiz, he said people are not willing to tick that button. They're not willing, they want a, an all-in price and are not willing to pay the 250, which is minimal, you know, uh, for offsetting. So they, he reckons that approach doesn't, doesn't work. So I think from a carbon footprint point of view, sure, I have a high carbon footprint, you know, but uh, I do the best I, I can. But all I'm saying is that, you know, this, the answer going forward is this SAF answer. And the answer for Ireland to come back to me is to start producing SAF for our airlines now. Because for the next 15 or 20 years, it's the only game in town. How, how, and where? How, how and where would you produce it? Because how much volume of it can be produced to actually service Yeah, but that's the, that's the thing. You see, this comes back to a simple investment decision, Matt. Like, if the investment criteria, if the markets are there, they will do it. So what needs to happen is the mandate needs to be higher. At the moment, the mandate is 2% blend. And what I mean by 2%, 2% of your fuel. Now, to me, that's been produced by the, by the Commission, and I'm, I know them all very well, but I think it's very unambitious. Like, that needs to be, you know, 15% by 2030, and it needs to be 50% by 2035. And only then will you get the quantum shift that you will actually need to burn it. Now, remember, some, I know that all these guys here are experts, but I was at a conference recently where people were saying, well, you know, biofuels and synthetic fuels, nothing comes out. They actually produce emissions out the back of the aircraft, the same as J1 does. But the, but the, the whole chain of how they're produced, you know, gives you the net zero. So it's not exactly, there's a big discussion about what goes into them in terms of crops, and this is going on at the moment. So, like, but in Ireland, we should do this now. Like, and get on with producing SAF here. You know, we're looking at it now. I remember 10 years ago when I was the CEO of the IA, a guy came across from the States, from California, who's now producing SAF in California. And he came in, and I remember that it struck me, Fergus Wilson, I think, who's here, was at the meeting. And it struck me the difference between Erlingus and Reiner that day, because I was sitting there chairing the meeting. Erlingus were talking to him about, well, how will it work, and how will it work, and how will it work, and how would you do it, and how would you make it? And the Reiner guy who was there said, 
when can you produce it? How much a gallon is it? And will you deliver it? They were the only questions they had. And there was a kind of a, a very straight guy because the guy at that time couldn't answer the question. But this same guy now is heading up a very, very large plant in California. And there, there's good stuff happening in Amsterdam at the moment. There's a, and in Rotterdam, there's two huge refineries coming and they're producing it. So we should produce it here. Like, I just think this is a top priority and we should get on with it. You're coming to the end of your term as Director General of Eurocontrol in December. How badly are you going to miss it? No I, I, no, I don't want to be running things anymore, Matt. Like, I've been running, like, there's running the IA for 15 years, Eurocontrol. When I get up every morning, I've got to look and see what the fog's like in Amsterdam, or has something happened in Rhodes, or, you know, guys are, you have no idea. Like, the, the, can the you not delegate system, that? No, you can, but you can't really. Because, the, 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 you know, like the, the, you, you, get, you get immediately roped in. And I tend to get involved in operations. Like, I don't think you can't run a business if you don't know how the basics operate. So I go straight to the network manager and we try and sort problems out. And we, we've done a, a lot and changed a lot. While I've been in Europe control, we now can, you know, flow traffic in Europe much better than we could before. And I, we've brought in a huge amount of improvements. We got hit by the war. Like, definitely the war has been a huge setback for us now because we're, we've our airspace squeezed. You know, I mean, if you compare... Europe to the United States, you know, they have, um, you know, about 46, 47,000 flights a day, but they have a single jurisdiction. I'm faced with 42 different air traffic control providers. Some of them talk in different languages, some of them who don't want to do what they're told, and that's the problem you've got. And that's the problem of Europe, but it doesn't mean you shouldn't keep doing it. So what are you going to do after you retire? So I'm looking for a job in a bar. <laughs> if I, I want a but job you'd have that, to be the manager, wouldn't no, you? No, no, I don't. I want a job, Matt, that has no responsibility, that just have to work away and do something. But I am going to work. I, I'm not returned. So no, you strike me as somebody who's got so much energy that you'd go absolutely mad No, I would, you retired. No, no, I, I probably might. But I'll give it a go for a fortnight. And then I'll see how it works. <laughs> but my plan is, no, no, I, I come up with something. But I mean, I'm working. And will it be in aviation? Yeah, of course. It has to be, you're just, this is a lifelong Yeah, just, I love passion. it. I love it, yeah. I, 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 it'll be aviation, and I'll, I'll, I'll do stuff like that. I, I, I like it, and it's good fun. And, and most of the people here in the room, I know, you know, I know most of the people in Europe and aviation. I think there's nearly in every country, I know nearly everybody that runs aviation at this stage. So there has to be a bit of value in that. Eamon Brennan, Director General of Eurocontrol, thank Thanks. you so much. Thanks. Well done, Matt. And that's it for the latest edition of Magnified, a slightly different one, as I explained earlier, one that was done in the Strand Hotel in Limerick as part of the Silk Conference, Shannon International Leasing Conference. My thanks again to Samantha Harding, as well as to Eamon Brennan for facilitating that. Back to normal kitchen encounters in the Magnified series next week. Hope you'll join us then. Let your friends know if you've enjoyed this or any of the others. And if you haven't heard all of the various interviews on the Magnified series, well, you can get them on the Go Loud app or Spotify or Apple or wherever it is you get your podcasts.